Hello, this is Monica Reeds. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is a journalist and author who specialises in Chinese arts and culture, having lived in Beijing and Taipei. She worked on the books desk at the London Times and reported on contemporary art and literature in China, Russia, Cuba, and northern Iraq. One trip to Beijing inspired her to study Chinese language, leading to a master's in Chinese studies. Her new book is *The Subplot: What China Is Reading and Why It Matters*. It's a journey through the vast country's complex but often overlooked literary landscape. Megan Welsh, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thanks so much for having me.、Uh, this is a fascinating subject, and it's one that not many Western people know about. I mean, we've heard obviously of many of the writers, Shalaigao, Wild Swans. I mean, there are many, many books that have been translated and have done very, very well. But of course, there's a vast amount of literature we have never come across, and this goes back centuries. Although, indeed, some of the very earliest writers we do know. Tell us a little bit about the history of writing in China, because, as I say, it has absolutely ancient roots.、Mm. I wish I knew a little bit more about the the ancient roots of writing, but yes, it's it's an art form that's been really revered, I think, for the best part of two thousand years, especially poetry, and that still remains today, even though I, I think not many people actually read it. Poetry is still held held as the sort of the perfect distillation of you know a, a mode of expression. Literature was also really embedded in the civil service examination. So, if people wanted to pass it, it was seen as a very sort of meritocratic way of proving oneself.、Uh, they had to also show and demonstrate that they could write poetry.、Mm-hmm. So, for a long time, politics and poetry, and being a refined person, was absolutely embedded in the culture, and seen as a way for people to, you know, rise above the ranks that they were born into. But then, of course, around the sort of Qing Dynasty era, there was lots of upheaval. <laughs> And there was a huge revolution, really, within Chinese culture to transform literature from something that was read by very few to something that was part of the vernacular, and that's really where modern Chinese fiction began.、Mm. What is the the literacy rate in China? Yeah, I think it's well, it's a very good question. I think for for a long time it's been very very high, and that is actually thanks to Chairman Mao, who he simplified the characters and he made it much easier to teach. Chinese to、um, people all over the country, and I think the literacy rates were something like eighty or ninety percent of of the country. I think that's changing again, primarily because migrant workers move to the cities, but they don't have residence there, so it's much harder for them to get a proper education、mm. and and actually、um, go to school. So. I don't actually know the exact figures, but that's really changing. But people certainly, there is a vast market for homegrown literature. Absolutely. Yeah. So of course, the Cultural Revolution was a huge defining point, and you start off talking about writers struggling to come to terms with that immediately afterwards. Tell us more. Yeah. So as we all know, the Cultural Revolution was a very sort of frenzied and、uh, difficult time for most people living in China, and as they emerged after Mao died. There was a sense that people didn't really know how to come to terms with what they'd seen and also potentially participated in. You know, a lot of people they sort of shopped in their own families basically, and、um, so society basically broke down. And I think in that period afterwards, there was this very exciting and liberating period where people—it's kind of known as the high culture fever period—where people tried to come to terms with that time. So there was scar fiction and. Misty poetry and lots of avant-garde writing, but all of that came to an end with Tiananmen, and so we'll never really quite know where that could have ended up had had that not happened.、Mm. And、uh, is the writing that was produced at that time still available? 
Yes. I mean, it's all the writers that we really know about, people like Yen Yen Ke and Mo Yen, Yu Hua, and they are still very much held up as some of the greatest writers that China has at the moment. A lot of their works aren't available in China, but a lot of them are. It's a sort of case-by-case basis, mm. and they are incredibly influential. Mm. So tell us then about censorship and how much people can write and how they get around it. Mm. It's, it's become an increasingly complex topic, I think, primarily because people in China have lived with censorship for the best part of 80 years. Obviously, it's fluctuated in with the political climate. Under Mao, there was basically you know, no literature being written at all apart from socialist realism and then just his his own poetry. But it's really morphed and, and shifted since the 80s and people, I think, largely say that they self-censor now. They're, they're very kind of tuned into what they think is the mood of the, of the moment and they're very careful to not overstep red lines or... If they do, they, they do it very innovatively in, in, in an exciting way. And I would also say that there are some writers, especially, I think this was quite popular probably 10 to 15 years ago, who were intentionally very uh, controversial and wanted to cross those red lines because it was seen as a, a way to get attention and the consequences weren't quite so severe then. Mm. But that's certainly not something that people are doing now. And I think, to a degree, people are a little bit tired of it as well. It, it felt like a bit of a, a ploy rather than something that was necessary. Mm. Just looking at, at the sort of publishing landscape, I understand that fiction only makes up 7% of printed books sold in China and that there's a massive market for self-help. That's right, yeah. Tell us more about that. It, it's part of the sort of strange landscape that people have grown up in in the last 30 years or so where, you know, this, it's this time of economic ascension. People have really seen it as an opportunity to change their their, their fate, to change their futures, their families' futures and... The arts have suffered as a result of that. People see it as a, a waste of time when there's this sort of opportunity to to get ahead. And, and it's been defined by this sort of phrase called sort of restlessness or fuzao, where everybody's just sort of trying to think where they can position themselves and, and get somewhere. And even if they want to read fiction, I think they feel like it's much more important for them to read things which are pragmatic or helpful. So unfortunately, the arts, I think, have suffered at this particular time. The ones that have survived are really rather special as a result. There's a sort of tenacity to it. But I, I would say that's probably why. Mm. And let's examine now the difference between writers writing in China and writers writing externally. And I, I think let's just talk about fiction in, in this context. Mm. Yeah, I think there was a, a culture of dissident writing, um, especially after Tiananmen and, and actually in the lead up to it. A lot of writers left and they... It's people like Ma Jian, really, who sort of led this uh, very combative style of writing where I think Chinese people living abroad, especially if they felt that they couldn't return home, felt it their responsibility to be overtly political because that's not something that writers living in the mainland can actually afford to do. And that has really shaped how their fiction has diverged. Ma Jian is known for his very brazen metaphors and his bravery, I would say. Uh, he sacrificed a lot, I think, to write the fiction that he feels he, he should be writing. But I certainly don't think it's, it's a way of saying one is better than the other. It's just how his work has evolved as a result of being away. Mm. Well, what about genre fiction? What are, we, what are we seeing coming out of China? Yeah, so I guess the most popular is science fiction, which Barack Obama did a great help with. He 
put Leo Tzadzin's Three Body Problem on his top reading list, I think, in 2014. And the sci-fi being written in, in China at the moment is incredibly exciting. It's strapped to the helm of this you know, nation that's forging ahead, destined to overtake the American economy in 2028 now, I think. And it definitely feels like these are people writing from the future. And it's certainly much more innovative than a lot of the fiction that's, or especially the genre fiction, that's being written online and is part of, I guess, China's biggest literary phenomenon of the moment, which Mm. is web novels. Right. Now, crime levels in China, the Chinese police say that there are no unsolved murders, for instance, in the country. Is there much crime fiction, given that that clearly there are no crimes? Yeah. (laughs) Surprisingly, there isn't very much. That doesn't mean that it's not... I mean, I think as a result, because there isn't very much, there, there is a real appetite for it. And I think this was maybe four years ago, there was a very popular novel called In the Name of the People, which was turned into a television show about an anti-corruption unit fighting both the sort of official corruption and sort of low-level corruption. And what was really important about it was that corruption had not been acknowledged at all in China in mainstream media, I think, since 2004. So even though this was something ultimately that was turned into a TV show on the CCP's watch, they were very happy to show themselves taking down corruption. People were so relieved to actually see it. There was a form of catharsis and it was incredibly popular. So that's one way that crime fiction is both popular and also sort of state-sponsored ultimately. Mm. Um, But then you also get a lot of quite brave writers who address corruption directly. They don't get published within mainland publishing houses, but they certainly think it's something that you cannot escape and it needs to be addressed from the bottom up rather than the top down. Mm. Uh, You mentioned earlier that the majority of writing is actually online. Yes. I mean, that's the other thing um, that's probably worth mentioning is because of China's uh, sort of turbulent history, publishing has really not had a chance to evolve organically in the way that it has in the West. Books were burned and disappeared or hidden under beds for years. And so when the internet arrived, it just became this place that was flooded with information and, you know, knock-off copies of lots of books that people were desperate to read or, you know, couldn't get their hands on. So people from very early on in China got used to reading fiction online, which is not something that we have really caught up with in the same way. Mm. And as a result, online fiction is absolutely enormous there. Mm. And what about YA, young adult writing? I mean, that is the most popular fiction at the moment it's you know romance and superhero narratives and they filled a void really in in Chinese culture I think after the 80s where they felt like there wasn't really any sort of youth culture really for people to sort of spend their their money on for people to relax in their free time and knowing that they couldn't write the more sort of combative or risky or innovative stuff people just started writing escapism and that has now become an absolutely central part of how young people spend their time. They, I think there's 450 active million readers. Wow. So up to 30 million titles for people to read, and they read on a day-by-day basis serialised novels that they now actually pay money for on the sort of pay-per-view system. And uh, it's been turned into a, a very kind of lucrative business. How interesting. So they're actually doing what Dickens did. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not quite of the same quality. Uh, <laughs> The emphasis really is on quantity rather than quality and it's a sort of fascinating arena and it 
pushes through sort of interesting quirks. Almost every novel, especially within the fantasy realm, has rebirth baked into the narrative. So everybody is given the chance to start again in whichever period they want, but with all the knowledge that they left behind. So a sort of 21st century person goes back to the Qing dynasty era. And if it's a girl, she'll bewitch people with her sort of 21st century sass. Or uh, if it's a, a male protagonist, he'll go back and he'll know how to make lots of money to become really successful in the future. And they're these sort of, in a way, quite endearing cheats that young people just really feel like they need because they just can't get ahead in reality. So the fantasy and the reality is there's a big gap between them. Mm. And then what about other forms like uh, sort of graphic novels? Yeah, graphic novels are a lovely sort of cottage industry in China. You tend to find them as you're walking around Beijing or Shanghai. You see a little curtain over a door and uh, it might be a place selling self-published comics. And they tend to be the complete opposite to either sort of propaganda posters where young people look sort of tech-savvy and wealthy and happy and also superhero kind of Marvel-style comics. They tend to be about people who are very ordinary, quite marginalised and often proud to be. And they feel quite sort of revolutionary in their own way because they're so off message in terms of what people are reading elsewhere mm. and also what the government is sort of pushing in terms of its sort of uh, state narrative. I'd like to look at the, the publishing industry itself, but starting with bookshops. So what kind of bookshops are, are available to the ordinary public in, in China, from the curtain over the door to something slicker? Yeah, so, I mean, the curtain over the door is pretty rare, although they do exist. I mean, I, I think for a long time, for the last 15 years or so, bookshops have been flourishing especially in the first-tier cities, because they've become symbolic of modernity and you go there and have a coffee and you read some books and you meet up with friends, you might take some photos, you get a copy of an impressive-looking book and, and it's very much about the aesthetic as well as engaging with the content of the books, really. But as far as I know, I think in the last couple of years they've been struggling to pay their rent, so I don't know how long that's going to last. It's, it's the same as we have here, really. But there's also been this really complicated and inspiring movement to set up bookshops in the countryside. And it's been pioneered by uh, I think one guy who set up um, the Libri Avant-Garde in Nanjing, this sort of beautiful, beautiful bookshop in an underground car park. So they transform rural villages by building a bookshop there. And I think the idea was they wanted people to move back to the countryside and set up these kind of artistic havens. And instead what they've really become is just a kind of uh, weekend getaway Mm. for urban people really needing a, a kind of inauthentic break yeah. from, from yeah. city life. And libraries? Lots of libraries. I mean, I, I have to confess I haven't really been to many, but they are... I know there's one in Tianjin which is very new and looks like one of the bookshops that um, is sort of springing up, which is a kind of futuristic sort of optical illusion where a lot of the books aren't even real. They're just sort of there to... The spines are kind of metal. <laughs> And uh, it looks absolutely exquisite, but just gives you a sort of eerie sense of like what what does this actually sort of symbolise? Yeah, but I mean, it's, so that is that reflective of the Chinese reading culture that it's more for show than for real? I wouldn't want to, to make too direct a conclusion about that, but I also think because they have not had the ability to have the same engagement with sort of hard copies, they've been sort of fetishised almost. You know, like if. In the past, if you got a sort of contraband copy, this would be read by maybe 100 people, mm. be very 
um, so it became this incredibly precious but battered around artefact. And then I think as a result also, you know, when you go into most bookshops, every book is covered in cellophane and you can't, like, flick through it very easily without sort of taking it all out. And they're treated as these objects that are sort of there to be looked at rather than opened, unless you buy them, of course. But mm. So I, I certainly think there's something to be said about it, but I wouldn't want to make too bold a statement about it. And is there a, a thriving market for underground, for banned books? Not anymore, I wouldn't say, really. I think... That was very much a part of the 80s and and perhaps the early 90s, but people had accepted that that, that had all changed anyway. But I certainly sort of look at the, the 80s with a degree of jealousy myself that it was such a kind of exciting period where I think a lot of Chinese writers and readers were just so passionate about world literature, their own fiction, and it felt like an incredible time. I wasn't there, but you know, it must have been an incredible time to be... Um, sort of part of the artistic landscape then. And I think now people just don't have time to be seeking out, you know, problematic fiction. I think if, if they are looking for anything, it's, you know, using VPNs to check out what news is being covered up. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. probably as far as they get. Yeah. And are they reading English novels in translation? I actually don't know. I th- I know that for the older writers, they're very good at staying on top of world fiction especially, not necessarily English actually, though still the sort of South American mm. writers, French writers, they're very, very plugged in in the way that I don't think we even are. That's the same for all the kind of young intellectual sort of literature lovers, but I don't know how big a group they are. Yeah, and I wonder about uh, homegrown publishing houses. So they are, I mean, they're all controlled by the state. So they, some are sort of much older and creakier and then you have some very exciting young imprints but they're still at the mercy of ultimately the sort of state censorship program and they tend to manage that by not publishing things that could get them in trouble. Mm. Copyright has been a huge bugbear for for people in the west finding that their books have been just ripped off in in China. Tell us more about that. Uh, I mean I think this is something that is not just literature it's sort of Lots of things. I think they are trying to put in place tighter restrictions for all of this stuff. And I actually think the the ability of big sort of e-commerce companies like Tencent and Chidian who run these online platforms, they are showing that you can actually start cracking down online, not necessarily in a good way, on, on what people read. Mm. But it's still a problem. I, mean, I think Harry Potter is still probably mainly read online, you know, or, you know, some knockoff copies than it is people buying translated versions from bookshops. I don't know, but that would be my guess. Mm. You were talking earlier about sort of trying to encourage a move to the countryside, and I wonder if there's much sort of pastoral writing. Yeah, I think pastoral writing is, in a way, it sort of casts a huge shadow over Chinese fiction because a sort of agrarian and societal structures are seen as inherently Chinese and the sort of new urban living and sort of consumerist lifestyle is seen as something which is a almost a kind of Western import by a lot of people, especially people of a kind of literary mindset. And I think that sort of is a whole mixture of the legacy of classical poets, but also Confucius and, and, and things like that. But it means that still the idea of writing pastoral fiction is seen as 
the apogee of, you know, great writing. And for a lot of young people, that's impossible. They've never lived there. They've all grown up in cities. And they're, they're trying to figure out what they can write about that feels authentic and literary and important. Mm. And actually that displacement is, is quite central to their own sort of identity crisis. I wonder if you could give us some recommendations of, of Chinese writers, contemporary Chinese writers, who are published in translation. Yeah, um, so I think my favourite is still Yen Lian Ke. He's, I guess he's a sort of well-known frenemy of the state, really. He's, he's able to live and work there. A lot of his work is not available in China. But he writes really sort of mesmeric um, novels about sort of strange states of limbo, whether it's a kind of AIDS crisis in rural China, which become, it's turned into sort of spreading fever that is narrated by a dead child, or, you know, mass somnambul- uh, somnambulism. He uses metaphors in a very kind of eerie, magical realist way to help you sort of understand that he feels like reality has quite sort of crazy dimensions. You know, the, the things don't feel like they are quite right. And all of his books put you in a very specific place. And then I would also recommend any sci-fi, especially if you want to sort of an entry point, anything translated by Ken Liu. He's an incredible sort of curator and translator of Chinese fiction. And I would also recommend um, some migrant worker poetry. It's a book called Iron Moon, translated by Eleanor Goodman. And that gives you also a very alternative view of um, a view from the bottom, really, of mm. Chinese society. Those are all male writers. Is there much of a gender disparity? There is, and I think there has been forever, really. Um, female writers struggle to get ahead. A um, there's one sort of well-known writer called Chen Kui, who was a migrant worker herself, and has sort of done the impossible. She's managed to become a pretty successful literary writer, writing about those experiences. But I think she really struggles in terms of how she's treated and how she's um, how she's able to sort of compare with, with other writers of her generation. But sci-fi certainly has huge amounts of female writers and I haven't seen any disparity in terms of gender there. Mm. And as we see China becoming more and more of an aggressor, how do you think the future of Chinese literature is is going to pan out? Yeah, I, I I really don't know, and I and if you asked me the same question about here, I wouldn't know either. The one thing I do think is that things are really tightening in China at the moment, and people can't speak very freely about many many topics. And I actually think that will be a strength for fiction. It'll be a place that people can find the space to explore difficult um, subjects. And I think people will continue to do that. Also primarily because it's not so popular anymore. And that gives it a sort of de facto freedom, which it didn't have in the past. Mm. Megan, thank you so much. That's absolutely fascinating. And if people want to follow up on some of those authors that she mentioned and many, many more, you really need to get a copy of the book. It's called The Subplot, What China is Reading and Why It Matters. It's by Megan Welsh and it's published by Columbia Global Reports and it's out now. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Monocle Reads. Thanks to the producer, Nora Hull, and researcher Lillian Fawcett. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.